I'm Portia Sabin. This week on The Future of What, we're having our Gatekeeper Roundtable. We'll talk with Ali Hedrick of Billions, Kristen Green of Onto Entertainment, and Nate Nelson of Innovative Leisure. We'll be talking with all of them about why they choose the music, bands, and artists they do. It's a must-listen for any aspiring musician. Stay with us. Sabin, and you're listening to The Future of What. My guests today are Kristen Green, manager extraordinaire, and Ali Hedrick, booking agent extraordinaire. I'm not very creative, but that's it. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hello. So today we're doing another Gatekeepers Roundtable where we talk about, the three of us are gatekeepers technically (laughs) in this weird way. And we talk about music that totally made us want to work with an artist and so the first song we're going to play is... What will it be? I don't it be? know. We will love it, though. <laughs> we already do love we it. We already do love it. We don't know what it is. I'm a little rock On a big mountain Nobody's calling my name Nobody's paying me I'm a little drop from a big fountain Oh, I blend in and that's fine And my sister, she Is gonna die trying With her heart ablaze in a fighting song Not me Give a gust of wind and I'm gone, gone Cause I don't want to be somebody to anybody, no I'm good at no Once I was loved, but I wouldn't dare Take a compliment or give a kiss just thinking of being a pair had me suffering, made me split. All because I don't wanna be somebody to anybody. I don't look up just side to side 
past a world capsule they can see there's nothing wrong with me it's just that i don't want to be somebody to anybody know oh i don't want to be somebody to anybody know i don't want to be somebody Wow. That was awesome. Allie, mm -hmm. what was that? Margaret Glatsby. She's a new artist. She lives in New York. She's from Boston. That's a demo version of that song. So it's not even, you know, fully flushed out, but lyrically, I mean, the lyrics are incredible. It what just a kind voice. of yeah. blew me away right away. What and yeah, and her unique voice. Yeah. I think she's got a little bit of Joanna Newsom in there, but it's not quite as childlike as Joanna Newsom. But it's just kind of an empowering song for women too a little bit like she's a dandelion she's she she doesn't want to be anybody to somebody so she kind of wants to be on her own and I just really connected with it the first time I heard it so how did you hear it did you receive it as a demo her manager Emily Lichter who you know Kristen mm -hmm. emailed me and said she just started working with this great artist and she signed to ATO records so it was like, oh, great, there's a nice team in place, you know, to start. But then I just listened to that and some of her other songs, and I loved them. But I still wasn't sure. And about two weeks ago, I went out to New York and saw her play a show. And first song in, I was like, yep, yeah, I'm in. Mm -hmm. Loved That's it. Awesome. Yeah, there was no question. You had me at like 10 seconds. I was like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, her voice, you know, and, and each of her songs are very dynamic and very different. And, you know, this song live was with a full band and a lot faster and just really powerful. And she doesn't have a lot of effects on her vocals live. I mean, she's just got this like booming, beautiful voice. Incredible. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. What I thought was really amazing, besides the voice, the voice really stands out, but was that descending chord progression. Mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. think I've ever heard anything like that before. And I feel like that's, I love stuff that takes you by surprise, where it goes mm -hmm. somewhere that you didn't expect it to go. And it wasn't like, like huh. the formula, you know, like it wasn't right. that. It was like linear, but there was enough of that hook in that chorus that was just sexy. Like it was a really beautiful song. Yeah, yeah. it was nice. Mm -hmm. Totally. You know, and can you, you know, that was just her pretty much playing that on guitar and singing like when she has it recorded and producer comes in. I mean, it's going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. That's another piece of this puzzle too, is that when you can hear, I think Slim, my husband said last, last time we did a gatekeepers roundtable, he said, when you hear somebody who can just do it with just a guitar and voice, you know mm -hmm. that they're the real deal mm -hmm. because you can always add, you know, layers and orchestration and fabulosity on top of it. But the song itself has to be where it's at. And mm -hmm. that was, I loved it. I was like, did she record this in her garage? <laughs> like, it's mm -hmm. kind of echoey and weird. Like, it's not the best recording quality. Yeah. And but the song is so strong. Melodies, those vocal melodies came in, or harmonies came in, and it was like, yeah. Really unexpected and lovely. Yeah. yeah. It was awesome. That's a really good one. Mm -hmm. Nice choice. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well now, you've been in the business 20 years. Is that correct? That is true. Yes. Do you want to tell us how you got into this crazy business? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> sure. I went to school at Columbia College for the music business program in its first year. Uh, and I knew I wanted to work with music, but I wasn't quite sure. And I thought, oh, I want to work for a record label. And then I realized, oh, I'm going to be working for the R&B department. <sighs> 
you know, working with music that I don't like and, you know, oh, maybe I'll be a promoter. And then I interned for a semester at a nightclub called the Elbow Room in Chicago. And I'm like, oh, I have to book bands that sell beer, (laughs) even though I don't like them. Uh Like that band spit on stage. Gross. I don't want to ever book them again. Oh, no, you have to. Did you see their bar ring? Like, oh, wait, no, (laughs) I don't want to be a promoter and book crappy bands that I don't like. So I just it just kind of was a perfect fit being an agent. I kind of have an alpha personality. I get to work with artists that I love and believe in. Mm-hmm. So I'm not selling something that I don't already really like. So right. it worked out well. I met Botch. I was, you know, I was so young. I didn't know how to use a computer. <laughs> this was before the internet. Yes, I remember those days. Oh, I didn't know how to cut and paste. My first day in the job of billions, I was like, <laughs> I don't know how to cut and paste on a computer. So um... I was scared to death. Wow. But I'm a very hard worker and persistent, and I love music. So, yeah, it worked out. Yeah. Now, booking agents are, I I mean, I feel like you guys are at this point the gold ring, like the phoenix of the music industry, because really everybody is now trying to make money from touring. I mean, it's always been true. Like, it's always been good to have a good booking agent. But nowadays, it's, like, critical. And I feel like it's harder and harder to get a good booking agent. I mean, that's just my sense from the label side. I could be wrong. But do you feel like you guys are in even more demand now? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a ton of pressure. I mean, absolutely. I was just talking about Kristen about this before we came in today. You know, I have to deliver, you know, giant festivals for bands and some bands that the festival promoters don't want to book. Mm. And I need to figure it out. And I need to make the money and I need to make them, you know, put Why? them on the road as long as possible. Why would that be? Why would a festival promoter not want to book a band? Oh, uh an artist might be more of a heritage act. It might be huge, but might be more of a theater act and not doesn't work as well in festivals or they've already played before. Mm. Or um, as you'll see a lot of the newer, you know, Lollapalooza, like some of the guitar bands, the kids don't want to see that mm. as much. Interesting. I think that's definitely a changing landscape and I don't book electronic music a little bit, but not too much. Right. And so, you know, yeah, it's it's it, it, it's a lot of pressure, but it's also one of the most successful jobs in the music industry right now because people aren't selling records, exactly. as you know, because you get them for free. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I know. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good. We love it. Well, now let's move along yes, to please. Kristen. Let's play your song. Okay. Nobody will have recognized. No, no one will recognize. Yeah. This first time. This is a, a very <laughs> rare and, and underground <laughs> tune. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been trying to do it right I've been living a lonely life I've been sleeping here instead I've been sleeping in my bed I've been sleeping in my bed So show me family All the blood that I will bleed
live version? No. That's the actual version. That's I've never listened to it in headphones before. Yeah, it's pretty wild, huh? Yeah, there's so much background stuff going yeah, on. I love it. They flew a lot of that in after the studio. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, there was a few. So the first time I heard that song was in an A&R meeting, and it was a YouTube video, and it was a party. It was like a house party they were playing, and there was a guy with a decent camera, like not an iPhone, the next step up, and it was there were four of them at the time, and it just kind of went through once back again and panned back for the third time and it was over and it was like huh that was really fun and engaging and I loved it yeah and then just kind of made contact flew to New York a few weeks later they were doing a residency at the living room saw the show the show was for the same four and there was maybe 20 people there and I came in with my favorite lawyer and one of my favorite agents and one of my clients at the time, and everybody was like, Whoa. <laughs> you've got to do this, you know, self-included. So, yeah, it wow. was awesome. Wow. wow, that's awesome. So they had no management. Mm, no, did... they had a friend that was helping them out. Oh, okay, yeah. Mostly because they didn't and couldn't really afford smartphones and, and like, couldn't <laughs> keep up with the volume that was happening. Uh -huh. um, yeah, and they were recording, so they were in New York for the month making a record in their parents' attic. And decided to use that as like a home base to do like a little bit of a star touring scenario. So like out to Jersey, out to Philly, and then back and then record and then out to Burlington and back. And we're doing that. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. That was Ho Hey by the Lumineers in case you have been living under a rock for the last <laughs> several years. You did not know that. Yes. Even I knew that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's exciting. And so now did you get Scott Robinson and Dual Tone? interested or were they sort of around um, sniffing around at the same time will who is the in our folk in their office one of them contacted me i it's really funny i found the email like six months ago like just digging something out and i was like whoa and it was like the first contact and he was like oh hey there like we saw the show coming up looks like a really cool band like i'm gonna check it out or something you know something really vague like mm -hmm. hey i see you i'm going to this thing let's chat and that was the initial the first person who kind of reached out I don't remember at what point that was, like if we had already made the record or we were making the record. Um, but yeah, they kind of made contact and were the first in and held on. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. We, our very first show, we interviewed Scott Robinson. He talked about. He's um, incredible. Yeah, he's great. I love yeah. him. He's a good guy. So I already got a little bit of their side of the story, oh, okay. the Lumineer story. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, I think we had made the record. The more I think about it, I think we were, yeah, that's it. We had made it. And then they came around. We were doing kind of like a finish the record Let's do two weeks on, two weeks off of touring until we figured out a release strategy. And then they were the first ones to kind of come in during that touring period. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you know if they re-recorded it or if they just... No, we remixed just... it shortly thereafter. So the, we made the record in, oh goodness, uh, April or May out here in Seattle. And then we remixed it in January. And... Yeah, that was it. And then it right. just became a scramble for, like, what else do you have, you know, because there were 11 tracks and it was, like, going crazy and everybody wants exclusives and there's licensing. And then it was just like, well, we've got, you know, how much of these other demos or these alt versions do we allow out? And it's becoming, you know, content is becoming more and more valuable and important. So that's been fun. Yeah. Still <laughs> to this day. Yeah. So for people who are not familiar with what managers do, basically what you guys do is you drive the business side 
You mm-hmm. help make a business plan. You help sort of visualize how a band is going to. Right. I explain it to like my grandparents as like creating revenue streams for a company. So that's everything from finding those opportunities to, you know, then assembling the teams that work around music. So of hiring and firing of the booking agents and the publicists and the labels and the touring team and band members if needed, that kind of thing. Business manager. Business manager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how long have you been with them now? What year was it that you heard this song, heard this demo? Uh, 2011-ish, maybe 2012. Cool. Uh, the record came out in 2012, so yeah, so since 2011. Great. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Well, that's a success story. We like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're really great people. It's been a really fun, like, four, five years. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And they're a special case because they do such big shows mm-hmm. now. I mean, that's not not every band has that kind of a trajectory where you go right from like a residency with 20 people at the living room to 30,000 know. in South Africa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. Thank you for filling in the mm-hmm. blank. That was, <laughs> that was the most recent. Exactly thing. what yeah. I was. <laughs> yeah. For. And probably not the biggest. Oh, no, that was pretty big. I mean. If the main stages at festivals is like the 60,000 at Lala yeah. or whatever yeah. is like pretty wild. But, you know, your own headlining is pretty, pretty nuts. It was between South Africa and Meriwether, mm-hmm. Baltimore, D.C. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the A&R meeting that you heard that in. How many songs would you guys listen to in an A&R meeting? Um, so we were pretty formulaic at that time. It was every Wednesday or whatever, and everybody had to bring in, you know, three different acts. And the story goes that the guy who brought in this had, had kept bringing in Seattle bands. And at the time, we were managing Fences. The Head and the Heart were blowing up. And Macklemore was blowing up. And this city was, like, completely saturated <laughs> and oversaturated with, like, bands. That were, and it's just, like, we've, we've got all those covered. Like, Seattle's got it covered. So I called him the night before. And I was like, you have to bring in something from not the Pacific Northwest or you're fired. <laughs> and I was kind of joking, you know, but not really. Um, so we all brought in some stuff. And all mine got vetoed that week. And... <laughs> Yeah, this video just kind of struck everybody and, you know, it was had to be a unanimous decision and that's kind of how we were doing it. Everyone's like, yeah, cool. What's what do they have going on? And so we just started looking it up and was like, oh, let's fly to New York and see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. That's I love that part of this industry, you know, the discovery Mm -hmm. part, because that's exactly I mean, not every not in every A&R meeting do you get lumineers. Mostly you just get like, eh. Try again. Yeah, you know, not my thing. Not my again. thing. Not my thing. Try again. And if you yeah. guys had to be unanimous, that's that's so hard to do. I'm so spoiled because I run my own label, which means mm-hmm. it's just whatever I like. Well, we were such a young company. We are such a young company. But, you know, the folks we had working for us, like in management in particular, like you can't really dig into something unless you love it. And so to ask an office full of people to like really love and work hard on something that they don't feel passionate about is not going to work, mm-hmm. in my opinion. No, that's totally true. Mm-hmm. And I say that I'm not, you know, I, I get to do it all my way. But the truth is, if I wanted to put something out that the guys in my office hated. Yeah, you probably would That would be it. hard. I, would, I couldn't do that. Unless definitely... you really were like, no, you guys are wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I've said Which that. Ha- oh, yeah, I, have, I have done that. I have too. Upon Occasionally. Occasion. But I've also thought something was great, wanted to sign it. And other people have been like, you should listen to that again. I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it goes both ways. Yeah, it's true. But that's why gatekeeping is hard, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm sure we all have stories of the one that got away, the one that we were like, "Oh, I wish I had actually signed that." You know, you're looking sad. No, I'm, it's fine. <laughs> it's no, totally oh, fine. there's so many. There are so many. Come on, I saw Aaron and Wines first show uh-huh. uh, in Chicago. He played with his sister, and he opened up for. I think it was like first to three in an ugly Casanova tour, 
and I'm sitting there with his manager, and he left the stage, like, during the set for three songs, and his sister sang. Mm. And I remember being like, I don't know about this guy's work ethic. Yeah. Like, I just don't know. Like, I like it. I was like, I don't know. And his manager was like, you shouldn't. He's like, I don't know. This isn't the greatest set. And he's like, maybe you shouldn't sign that. Like, he was like, it, it. Oh, my God. At least they were honest. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, huge regret. Huge yeah. regret. I mean, I love And his music is incredible. He's like a preacher. He's so charismatic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fine. Right. But, you, you, can't, know. you can't win them all. Yeah, you can't win them all. And I was like, oh. But this way you have a good story. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you hear things too early. <laughs> exactly. When they're not uh, ready. I yeah. heard the Fleet Foxes, some demos, and I was like, hmm, I don't know. I was like, I like the music a lot. I was like, I can't tell if his voice is that great. I said that about the lead singer of the Fleet Foxes. Wow. Yes, I did. Yeah. Well, no, it happens. It was a demo. It's a demo. I mean, it's Who what knows? are you going to do? I mean, luckily, I have a lot of success stories. So, like, right. It balances it out. Yeah, but. Yeah. Totally. I didn't say that to Sufjan Stevens. Good. Yes. I liked that one immediately. <laughs> well it was done. a good thing. Well I'm, not, I'm not so sure about that guy's voice, though. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And then I saw Robin Pecknold of the Flea Foxes, like, singing at a show. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Right. He's incredible. And I, like, called the manager. She's like, oh, yeah, I think we're going in a different direction. And I was like, yeah. Totally. Missed it. Well, the one that I will say, I wasn't actually totally personally responsible because I wasn't running Kill Rock Stars yet, but I was managing the gossip. And this band opened for them in like 2002 called the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. And it was, it's like a legendary show because she got on stage. She went completely insane. She broke a bottle. There was glass everywhere. She fell down in the bottle, like was bleeding everywhere, got up off the stage. They played for like seven minutes and got off the stage. And everyone in the place was like, just silent like what did we just witness like that was insane and i was like you we gotta sign this this band is amazing right and slim talked to them and was serious about them because we had a band on our label called the seconds who had the same drummer but they wanted to put out an ep and he didn't want to do an ep they were very firm at the time they were like nope it's gonna be an ep only he was like okay fine that's so they put on it's usually the other way around Corey put it out on touch yeah Yeah. Yeah. i know and now we're like god I was past the Vampire Weekend record, the first one by the engineer, while I he was a drum tech for Herbie Hancock, and I was somewhere with Sonia Kitchell, who was recording with Herbie Hancock or something weird like that. And he was like, oh, "You're gonna love this," and I'm like, "Cool." And I never listened to it <laughs> <laughs> because that happens so often, right. you know. Here, listen to this, and you're like, "Yeah, great." And to be fair, I'm not the biggest fan of that band. I mean, I know that they're successful right, and right. people love them, but had I listened to it, I probably would have been like cool right thanks well yeah. you can, i mean you can't listen i can't listen to everything no you can't no it's a rare occasion I, when you get that email that you press play i mean yeah. i can't i get five or six a day i just i can't do it yeah i wouldn't be able to get my work done yeah right because so, you have to have another yeah so then do you have gatekeepers no i delete them you I just did. delete them. i re i scan them <laughs> I look them over if it's someone that I know that sent it to me. I always listen to it. Right. If it's a friend or someone in the industry or, you know, great manager label. I mean, for me, you needed a good team. I kind of need a good team of people. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm at a point in my career where I'm not wanting to discover that band that doesn't have anyone else kind of in their corner. Well, and I don't think that these days that's feasible. Like, I don't think... I think you have to have a good team put together. Do you know what I mean? For you know, right. you have to see that other people are willing to take a risk on this band just because 
there's just too many bands. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just too much noise and too little. You know, like the slot has gotten so small that you know we're trying to shove giant blocks through a tiny hole. Absolutely, and we gotta be. We gotta say no somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if there's a bad public, if there's not a publicist. I mean, like one missing piece of the puzzle can derail a whole campaign. Exactly. Right. And it's really not like the old days. You know, when I took over Kill Rockstars, we could probably anything I put out, I could probably sell 2000 copies just straight out of the box, just on the name alone. Mm -hmm. And now forget it. That is not the case anymore. So now selling 2000 is like, woohoo, we sold 2000. It's, you know, it's it's a different world. Absolutely. So should we hear my song? was Horse Feathers, Finch on Saturday, off of their first album, which was on a little Portland record label called Lucky Madison. And Slim got that album. I think he bought that album in like 2006. And I remember listening to it the entire year of 2006 and just thinking how much I loved that guy's voice. It was so unique and perfect. And it was like that sort of like wintry, you know, I want to sit by the fire and mm-hmm. listen to this. Just, I just loved it. But I didn't really think about it. Like I was just like, oh, I love this. La 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 la. And then I saw that Horse Feathers was coming to New York because we were living in New York at the time. And I went to the show and I talked to Justin, the lead singer afterwards. And, and he was like, oh yeah, I had so much trouble because my whole band quit. 
like my the the guy who played cello on on this album moved to Europe and I was like oh really he's like yeah but I had this tour booked so I just put together a whole new band and went on tour and I was like wow oh okay <laughs> you're serious <laughs> you and I are gonna be friends like this is good like this and I was like that's it I'm totally signing this guy because that's what you're looking for is you know it's it's so many bands would just retire if they're like oh my you know my main support guy moved to Europe Oh yeah, they'd be like, "That's or it." They I'm just done. cancel the tour. Like, I can't canceled. possibly do that. No, and he just pulled it together and made it happen and played great shows. And you always want an artist to work as hard as you're going to work. Well, There's harder. nothing worse than you, you can't be the biggest champion. No, nope. if they're not, especially at the beginning. Yeah, you know when they're young and yeah, no, you can't be. That 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 never works. <laughs> yeah, it actually doesn't work. No, it like, doesn't. If you work harder than them, forget it. Mm-hmm. If they're sitting at home saying. Call me when you make me famous. <laughs> or just they just are too cool and they turn everything down or mm-hmm. they don't want to do it for some reason. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. Although I do feel like we've had a sea change in the music industry, which I always point to that Outback Steakhouse ad. That <laughs> Who was it who did that Outback Steakhouse ad? But I feel like before that date, everybody <laughs> talked about cred. Mm-hmm. Like oh yeah, selling out and selling out. Yeah, and now all of a sudden it's like everyone's desperate to sell it. They're like, "Please, when can you get my music in an Apple commercial or a right Hyundai mm-hmm. commercial or something?" Right, right. Like there was just this moment, and it's like all over. Well, I mean, I, it's a lot of money there. Yeah, exactly. people just aren't making money by selling mm-hmm. records, so they need to figure out other revenue streams, and they also just need to get as much content out there as possible to exactly have awareness of who they are. Right. Otherwise, people don't know your name. Yeah, it's like a little blip mm-hmm. it goes by. Right. Of course, not that I'm knowing the name of the Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> I, kind of, I saw the sea change with Grey's Anatomy. That's when I really oh. started placing musicians and bands and songs with visuals was uh-huh. Grey's Anatomy. And that was Chop Shop. I think still yeah. is Chop Shop. And I remember them specifically because it was more subversive indie acts like I think Ingrid Michaelson was in on that front end and Mm -hmm. some other people and I remember the game changing for that for me the ads I think were like more Super Bowl stuff right you know where like and then now it's like not that big of a deal like the ad stuff I mean there's there's a line right like I think that some bands are like you know some big box stores might be unattractive or cigarettes or some with alcohol like there are some lines with tweeting too there's a lot of corporate things now that it's like, if you do this, we need you to tweet three times before and three times after. Well, that's and I have the, a lot that's... of bands that are like, N- I'm not going to tweet about StubHub. Right. I'm not going to tweet about going to a secondary market no. to buy my tickets right. where we make none of that profit. Like, right. No, I don't think so. Yeah. But I mean, it also begs the question, like, how effective is that? Because it's really not like, I mean, I keep thinking they about... Care about... I mean, they, the, you know, the bad ones, they don't care about effective. They care about eyeballs. Right. So if you have... Two million Twitter followers and ten percent of them look and see shout out to Kmart or Walmart or something. Like, <laughs> they're stoked. That's like you know twenty thousand more than they would have had that afternoon. But yeah, wow. the obligations that are coming along with that stuff is starting to get a bit much. Yeah, you have to be pretty careful about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. That was of Montreal, by the way. Was the oh. the band that I was thinking of the Outback Steakhouse? Oh, at. okay. Yeah, I feel like that was. This, oh, that's like, actually surprising moment. to me. Right? Yeah, I was. Yeah. That's a yeah. yeah. And I feel like that changed everything because after that, everyone's just been like, please sell me out. How can I sell Well, out? I mean, there's so much corporate sponsorship with everything that you do. I mean, on stages and, and there's just stickers and banners and neon. And at, at a certain point, you just have to be like, I just don't even care anymore. Right. Because it's just, it's Pervasive. just all a blur. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but if the band actually has to 
say it themselves, which tweeting is like their own words. It's like coming out of their mouths. Like they're saying no to that, I Mm -hmm. think. Right. If it's a company they don't believe in. Yeah, that's totally true. They're still saying no to that for sure. You've been listening to The Future of What. I'm Portia Sabin. Today's guests were Kristen Green and Allie Hedrick. Ladies, thank you so much for being on The Future of What. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. We continue our Gatekeepers Roundtable in just a minute. To the news that was ripe with disease It's a sickness to say what they please As the sycophants tavern They worthless wing And realize their plot's far too thin As they fight for the right side of the night
You're listening to The Future of What. I'm Portia Sabin. We're continuing our Gatekeeper series, where we try to give advice to aspiring artists and musicians through the stories of people who make decisions in the recording industry. We're going to turn now to Nate Nelson of Innovative Leisure. He joins us now by phone. Nate, welcome to The Future of What. Hi, thanks for having me. So on today's show, we're doing a Gatekeeper's Roundtable where we talk about songs that we loved that kind of got us to want to work with the band and move the, help move the band to the next level. So the song that you have sent for us today to listen to is a song called Accordion by Mad Villain. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Okay, we're going to listen to it right now. off borrowed time, the clock tick faster. That'll be the hour they knock the slick blaster. Dick dastardly and muttly with sick laughter. A gunfight and they come to cut the mix master. I C E cold, nice to be old. Y two G Steve twice to threefold. He sold scrolls, low and behold. Know who's the illest ever, like the greatest story told. Keep your glory gold and glitter. For half, half of his niggas to take him out the picture. The other half is rich and it don't mean shit to. Feeling a mixture between both with a twist of liquor chasing. With more beer, tasting like truth for dear. When he at the mic, it's like the place get like, oh yeah. It's like they know what's about to happen. Just keep your eye out, like eye eye capping. Is he still a fly guy clapping if nobody ain't hear it? And can they testify from in the spirit? And living the true gods, giving y'all nothing but the lick like two broads. Got more lyrics in the church, got ooh lords. And he hold the mic at your attention like two swords. Or you the one with two blades on it. Hey you, don't touch the mic like it's AIDS on it. Yeah, it's like the end to the means. Fuck type of message that sends to the fiends. That's why he bring his own needles and get more cheese than Doritos, Cheetos, or Fritos. Slip like Freudian, and your first and last step to playing yourself like accordion. When he at the mic, you don't go next. Leaving pussy cats like why hoes need Protex. Exercise index won't need Bowflex and won't take the one with no skinny legs like Joe Tex. So that was Accordion by Mad Villain. So, Nate, tell us the story of how you came to hear this song in the first place. I was living in Los Angeles. I moved to Los Angeles from Colorado and I was, I wanted to get into the record industry, but I was actually got into the music industry by way of. Uh, music supervision. So I was working at a television company doing, you know, music supervision there. A lot of things were going on in LA during that time, you know, with the with the music scene. And uh, there was this little collective called Stone's Throw that had moved down from the Bay Area. And I, I got, got addressed to them by, I don't know how, but, you know, started listening to a lot of the stuff that this producer Mad Lib was doing, Quasimodo, J-Lib, and Yesterday's New Quintet. And then you know, I that Mad Villain record had gotten quote unquote leaked. I guess leaked back those days was demos got on the internet somehow, and somehow they made it into your. I don't even think it was inbox at that time. But that song in particular in that album really put me over the edge for the producer Mad Lib, and yeah, I was just really into it and into this little obscure label and sought them out and started a conversation and. You know, as, as things happen, I kind of moved through the course of music supervision. And uh, at the time, Stone Show was doing well and we're hiring employees. So 
So I went over there to start working there in 2005, which was just after that Mad Villain release came out. So Stone's Throw, it was sort of your gateway drug for working on a label, right? It it was the first label that I worked at. Yeah, that's correct. (laughs) You know, although I I did want to work at a label when I I moved to Los Angeles and I was was looking for a place to go. But, you know, I think Stone's Throw kind of found me through, through the way of the music. Right. So that song in particular was already out. So that wasn't so much a situation where you actually heard somebody and you were like, I'm going to open a door for this person. They sort of no, opened the door for you. No, not. No, yes, exactly. They, that record opened a door for me. That record was, you know, released before I started working at that label. So yeah, that, but it was a band that I wanted to work with. And yeah, so, so that's how it came about. Cool. So tell us how you guys started Innovative Leisure. You did that in 2010, right? So you worked at Stone's Throw for about five years? Yeah, I was working at Stone's Throw when we started Innovative Leisure. And I was working there and had just started this little label on the side to release some projects of friends of mine that wasn't really right put on Stone's Throw. So they, they allowed me to start this little label off the side. And it was, you know, it was nothing at the time. It was just couple seven inches and 12 inches and through you know the course of putting out releases and getting bigger you know we started doing full-length projects and and at that time another guy who was working at stone so jamie strong he wanted to start doing records on the side with me so we put out the honey oak tea record uh put out nick waterhouse all laws and then the labels just started becoming bigger that we broke away from Stone So and and yeah, kept doing innovative leisure and that's where we are at right now. Cool. Now you guys are a really interesting label because you had success in an area that a lot of labels don't necessarily have success in, in that you successfully upstreamed a band to a major. Yeah, well you brought up a, a good point is, you know, when we were working at Stone So one of the acts that we signed was two guys and at the time they were just Two guys who were making music together, Robin Hannibal and Mike Maloche, and we were we signed them to a record to put out a record. Uh, that project eventually became Rye, and the two guys named themselves Rye as a band. We released a single from that band while we were still kind of in our label infancy, and right after that single release, there was so much attention on the internet space that we started getting courted by major labels to upstream that record and that eventually happened to the universal group and that's handy for a a fledgling indie label because that means you get some cash right (laughs) absolutely yeah yeah (laughs) no i mean i we we kind of hit the gold mine of indie label building what you want to do in your first couple years of starting an indie label and look it wasn't a lot of skill it was a lot of luck you know (laughs) i I guess we had good ears is is what they say in the industry but it was being at the right place at the right time and having a lot of cash that came in because we sold that record to a bigger major so you've had some good success with sync licensing as well there was that honey al khatib song that was in an audi commercial for the super bowl yeah, we had that. We had a we had a lot of good successes with Harmony and Sync licensing. When we put out his first record, Will the Guns Come Out? We also had a Nike commercial around the same time, maybe a little earlier. But yeah, there was a there was a lot of interest in in him from the Sync community. And I, I initially started out this this whole conversation by telling you that I was a music I worked in music supervision when I first moved to Los Angeles. So I, I had a lot of contacts through that and through working at Stones. So there were just right for 
you know, when we had that Honey record to kind of place him in those lanes, I guess. And yeah, there, it, those are also, as you know, um, good for uh, revenue opportunities. So, so yeah, we were we were able to build a lot of the label that way as well. That's awesome, because that's something I think would be interesting to our audience is, is the notion that you were in music supervision, and so you had those connections and you had those contacts, and that obviously was really beneficial to you guys starting out. And so, you know, if people who are looking to get into the music industry, that is something that maybe they could consider as well. Yeah, of course. And, you know, that's one facet, I think, of the industry, sync licensing, but there's others that are also beneficial, I think, you know, if you work in a promotion department at a at a major label and you're making contacts at radio stations across the U.S. or, or further abroad, you know, those are important contacts to accumulate. If you work as a press agent or a publicist, you know, for a small firm and you're able to make those connects, I think that's always important. I just happen to be in a, you know, a certain niche of the business and, and that helped out with our label at the, at the onset. So nowadays when you guys get demos, do you listen to demos? Do you only take demos from your friends? I mean, how does it, how does it work for you guys? We're kind of grappling with that because we get sent so much music now that we're a little bit more developed. I'm sure you went through this too. And, you know, as your label grew, you get sent a lot more music. So now it's hard to discern what you should pay attention to because it's so much more than the audio these days. I, I think it's always been that way, but even more so now it's got to be, you know, the look, the aesthetic, the sound, is it current? Is it not current and you're going to, you know, reinvent the wheel with this stuff. So there's a lot of different things to consider. And we stopped so much taking unsolicited demos because I think that's pretty hard to just go into a new relationship without knowing who the band is, who they associate with, who their manager is, who their lawyer is. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So a lot of the stuff that we find nowadays is uh, relationships that we've had previously or through friends of friends. If that makes sense, I don't know if I'm explaining myself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's like you want to see that other people have been willing to get involved with this band. Absolutely, and people that you trust because new relationships, while we don't deflect them, they're hard because when you're investing money, and that's you know, that's what record labels have traditionally been is, is a way to distribute recordings and also to invest money into bands and artists. And when you're investing a lot of money and it's your money, you know, you want to make sure that these relationships are there and they're going to be concrete and they're going to last through thick and thin, I guess. Exactly. I always say independent labels are the risk takers of the music industry. Yeah, we, yeah, absolutely. We're, mean, the, we're the ones who do the development, you know, the get the artist when they're small and, and try to help yeah. grow them so that they can have a career. Yeah, absolutely. In the case of Rye, what we just talked about, you know, when, when Universal bought that record from us, it was already done. It was, a, it was complete. You know, the, the art was done, the music was done, it wasn't mastered yet, but we had invested yeah we had taken the risk we had invested the money we had flown you know one of the artists from berlin to la for numerous times to come record and and so a lot of that stuff was done there the 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 independent label level exactly because you know not to knock majors but they have a different business model if you can put out a, a video have it go viral and then you have a million fans 
then they're willing to come and, and give you some cash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think that maybe, you know, with, with a few projects that are still taking risks, although it's, it's changed, they're data driven now. So, you know, in the case of Rye, which is one thing that I know internally is, yeah, when that thing started going on the internet, they were able to take all of that data crunch numbers and just yeah throw in investment into into a project you know whereas whereas when we're signing something we're pretty much signing it from scratch right maybe there's a little rumbling of it in certain like regions but it's nothing that's like data focused we just kind of have to we're still the ones who are trusting our gut in the equation exactly and you have to have that ear or that nose depending on what you have to kind of sniff out, you know, I, I can envision this being something that a lot of people are going to be excited about. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes you're wrong. I yeah. You know, we've oh been wrong God. before. Totally. So, but sometimes <laughs> you're right. And yeah, that's, that's when it's good. Yeah. So one thing that we've been talking about in this Gatekeepers Roundtable series is the one that got away. Do you have any good stories about bands that you wish you had signed or that you got the demo, you passed, and then they became whoever? Yeah, I mean it's gonna make me look stupid though, <laughs> but but I yeah I'll, you know I'll be frank because we were just talking about this in the office the other day. We were Odessa is an act that's really going great right now, and we had put out a similar project, maybe not complete, you know, maybe not a hundred percent similar, but we had put out a project from a band, an LA group called Classics, and then Odessa was something that a management company was shopping around to various labels and and it, it was similar to, to classics but it didn't really take with us i mean to see those guys success right now it's you know it's kind of we're shooting ourselves in the foot for not working with them but but you know they signed to a great label and and they're doing well so at least they didn't plunder into the chaos of noise i guess yeah, that's totally true. And, and you know, I mean, we can't win them all. We all have stories like that where, you know, oh, we didn't sign. You know, the White Stripes is a big one for us because we oh, talked yeah? yeah, we talked a lot to Jack White. And it just was one of those things where it didn't move super fast and we didn't push it that hard. And yeah. uh, forever <laughs> we'll be bummed about that one. Was that, before, was that sympathy for the record industry time? Or yes. Was it, yeah, oh, okay. exactly. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah, that's that's a lot more stupid than my stupid. <laughs> no, I just Thank kidding. you. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> time time tells everything, right? Exactly. Uh, it's all water under the bridge stuff. at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. So what was it about Odessa that made you pass? When we go into a project or when we're doing A&R meetings, um, which are pretty casual at the office, you know, it's it's passing around and and making sure that everybody is 100% on board with our small staff of wanting to do this project and wanting to push it out there and whether we all think that this is something that we want to invest in and, and put our time into. And with all acts that we sign, that's, that's pretty much the case, that we are fully committed and we're 100% on board. And, you know, some acts, uh, and there's lots of acts, it's not just Odessa, but there's lots of acts that, you know, one person might be totally into it, but, you know, there's some caution with another person or yeah it's just not hitting that other person 
in our team as big, so so we don't go for it. And that's what happened in that case. Yeah, and I think that's really important because even though, you know, sometimes I'll say, you know, it's my label, I can do whatever I want. The truth is, if the guys in my office are not on board with something, they're just not, you know, I, I wouldn't try to force them to work out an album they didn't like. Right. <laughs> I don't think they'd work yeah. out so well. <laughs> yeah, because it, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work out if you're, if you're in a team setting and, and there's one person who is throwing their ego into the, into the team and causing this, it's my way or the highway type of thing. I don't think it, it really works for a collaborative process. Totally. Even if you're the boss, I, st- I think you still have to listen to your team. Absolutely. Nate Nelson is the co-owner of Innovative Leisure. And Nate, thanks so much for being on The Future of What? Thanks for having me, guys. And that's our show. Today, you heard music from Margaret Glaspie, The Lumineers, Horse Feathers, and Mad Villain. It was produced by John Sepulveda and Will Watts and engineered by Eric Stolberg at Digital One Studios in Portland. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.